Psalm 95, and you'll need a Bible to follow along. So these brothers have some Bibles in hand. They're going to make their way to the back. And if you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll give you one of those. Keep it. Bring it back every Lord's Day as we look at God's Word together. Psalm number 95. Many Christians today have a warped understanding of worship because they have a deficient understanding of the God for whom we ostensibly do it. For many people in our churches, the favorite part of the service is the music. And that's because, for many, it's become a big production that involves big money. This past April, Christianity Today published an article titled, Our Worship is Turning Praise into Secular Profit. It said, trends toward intellectual property acquisition, lucrative arena tours, and corporate consolidation have helped drive record-setting revenues over the past two years. The touring industry saw $6.2 billion in 2022, and recording revenues in the U.S. reached an all-time high of $15.9 billion, growing for the seventh consecutive year. Many Christian artists, including those whose careers and brands are built on worship music, are benefiting from this growth. What's being marketed is obviously being purchased and consumed. And then is expected when those consumers go to church. But you see, when our chosen forms of entertainment become our forms of worship, the direction of worship becomes unclear at best. Do we gather for ourselves or for God? Now, since it can and does benefit both God and ourselves, then perhaps it's better asked this way. Do we gather first as priority for ourselves or for God? Some saw this trajectory many years ago. 1997, a then mega star of contemporary Christian music, Steve Camp, in effect left the industry after writing an emotional plea to his colleagues for repentance. He said, Out of love and zeal for biblical truth and the desire to bring it to light, I come to you, brethren, burdened and broken over the current state of Christian music. I come not out of a heart of condemnation, but out of convictions immersed in tears as one in desperate need daily of our Lord's grace to be conformed to his image. In the past several years, there has been a non-so-subtle drift away from Christocentric music to an anthropocentric music, from Christ-centered to man-centered. Sadly, this has resulted in various visible manifestations of spiritual sedition, where currently the contemporary Christian music industry finds itself on a slippery slope, sliding away at accelerated speeds from the Savior, the Scriptures, and the church. We have seen a change from the emphasis on serving God to an emphasis on serving self in serving God. The object of faith is no longer Christ, but our self-esteem. The goal of faith is no longer holiness, but our happiness. And the source of our faith is no longer the scriptures, but our experience. Christian music currently reflects this. We are producing a generation of people that feel their God, but do not know their God. 
you see this confusion about the nature of worship in that for many music has become the sum total of what is meant by worship as demonstrated in some of the terminology that we use we call the music leader the worship leader the music team the worship team and the song time is the worship time and all of this is failing to recognize that music is but one aspect of worship albeit an important one about 20 years ago, I was invited to a conference to hear about what was then a relatively new church planting organization called Harvest Bible Fellowship. Some of you may have heard of it. So I went to Chicago to hear what this was about. Harvest Bible Fellowship no longer exists, but for a time it appeared to be wildly successful as it planted dozens and dozens of churches throughout the country. And I was there because they were presenting Harvest's philosophy and they were inviting existing churches uh, like ours to join in with them. I sat in one session where the heart of the harvest philosophy was presented and it was centered around what they called the four pillars of harvest which were and see when I give these four see if you can identify the flaw. Here are the four pillars evangelism, preaching, prayer, and worship. Do you notice that preaching and worship are separated? <clears throat> that raised a flag for me. Now they had modifiers to each of those four and I can't remember them exactly, but it was something like unafraid evangelism and powerful preaching. But I do recall distinctly the modifier that was used for worship. It was passionate worship. So they've already separated preaching from worship and now they're giving a definition to worship that I'm going to guess, as I was listening to that, is focused on music. And so I attended a separate workshop devoted to what they meant by worship, and unsurprisingly, that workshop was led by the music guy, and it was entirely about music. Needless to say, CBC did not join Harvest, even though they had some good qualities and principles, and we didn't. I didn't advocate doing so because if you can't get something so fundamental as worship right, then I have little confidence in your wisdom and would not want to commit our church's resources to it. Our psalm today is about worship of the true and living God. As we've seen in weeks past, the book of Psalms is not as disjointed as it might at first appear. It's comprised of five collections of psalms, five books. We are in, you see highlighted, book number four. These individual books that were brought together into one book are like movements in a musical cantata, with each having a theme that contributes to the overall piece, bringing it to a culmination at the end, and in the case of the Psalms, culminating in praise to God in that fifth and final movement. Now, following the darkness that pervaded the Psalms, contained in book number three, this fourth collection focuses on the fact that God is on his throne despite what appears to be the march and eventual triumph of evil. And you see that emphasis with the repetition of the words, the Lord reigns in some of the Psalms in this book. For example, Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in Majesty and armed with strength, indeed, the world is established, firm, and secure. 
Psalm 96. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. And number 99. The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. This morning, then, as part of our worship, you recognize that what we're doing now is part of our worship. We're going to see that this God who reigns is indeed the object of our worship. Let's bow together then and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you that we're here. As I prayed to you earlier, Lord, we recognize we don't deserve to be here in your presence, numbered among the redeemed, your people. It's only because of your mercy and grace that we are here, and so we thank you. And Lord, we desire to please you in the time that we have here. Please you in the way we sing, please you in the way we pray and give and fellowship, and in the way we proclaim. We ask you to then help us. Aid us. We need your aid every moment of every day. And help us to emerge from this place better equipped to bring glory to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You should have received an outline for today's message when you entered. And I say in that outline, first of all, God tells us why we worship. Now, Pastor Larry read our Psalm 95 for us earlier in the service. And I want to call your attention to two places where we're told in that psalm why we worship. Notice the word for that begins verse number three. Verse three starts with the word for and again to begin verse seven. Now that word for then is because and it's saying that what we're told to do in verses one and two, which is verse one, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. We do that, verse 3, because or for. And then what follows in verses 3 through 5? The Lord is, and we will see that in a moment. And then what we're told to do in verse 6. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. We do that, verse 7, for because he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. So God tells us why we worship. And it's first of all because he is, I say in the outline, great. Verse 3, for because we come. We do what verses 1 and 2 say because the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. Now notice the phrase above all gods. That's the phrase that's used on a very special occasion in biblical history. Namely, when King David had recovered the Ark of the Covenant and he had brought it back to the holy city, Jerusalem. Now, if you've watched any of the Raiders of the Lost Ark series, then tell me about it sometime because, as you've heard me say many times over the years, if it was not on C-SPAN, then I probably didn't see it. But I know it's about finding the Ark of the Covenant 
And the Ark of the Covenant is this holy piece of furniture in the tabernacle that was used for worship, and it was placed in a special section of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. It had been captured by the Philistines, and David was able to defeat them and to recapture the Ark. And when he brought it back to Jerusalem, First Chronicles, in your Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, First Chronicles 16, records the celebratory worship that took place. And I want to read an extended portion of that passage because portions of that passage are quoted in several of the Psalms in this book number four of the book of Psalms. It's quoted extensively in Psalm 96 and Psalms 105 and 106. But here's what 1 Chronicles 16 says. Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength, seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. You, his servants, the descendants of Israel, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. When they were but few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from kingdom one kingdom to another. He allowed no one to oppress them. For their sake he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. And then it goes on to say, Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Proclaim his salvation. Do we have that? Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among the peoples. For because great is the Lord and most worthy of praise, he's to be feared. And notice the phrase, above all gods. Just as we have in Psalm 95. And not only does that passage in 1 Chronicles 16 recall the covenant that God made to Abraham 1,500 years or 1,000 years uh, before King David by using the language of the celebration of King David's triumph. It's reminding as well the people that God's program is on track, sometimes despite appearances. God made a covenant with David too, saying that there would be one who will come in his line who will be king forever. The Davidic covenant. The Lord said to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So verse 3 in Psalm 95 calls God's people back to their history and his king's defeat of their adversaries, and he reminds that his promises will ultimately triumph for them in a kingdom that will never end. 
And verses 4 and 5 look back also. They look back to creation and the implicit understanding that the creator is the owner and the sustainer, that he upholds the world that he made, every last bit of it. So verse 4 says, In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. So how deep does God's ownership and control go? The depths of the earth. How high? To the mountain peaks. And implied is everything in between. And that in between includes only two types of topography. Water and dry land. And he made and controls both of those, we're told in verse 5 as well. And so God tells us why we worship. Because he is great. And because. The psalm tells us he is good. As in verse 1, in verse 6, we are summoned to, to come. And then verse 7, we're given another reason why. For, because he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. One commentator says of this, here the worship of God is made personal for we are reminded that God not only made caves and the mountains, the seas and the dry land, he made us too. And what is more, he cares for us if we are numbered among his people. Using a common but beautiful pastoral image, the psalm says that we are God's sheep, the flock under his care. On that land and sea, between the depths and the mountaintops, are you and me. He owns us, too, and he controls the affairs of our lives like he does that of the entire world. But his control of our lives, if we are his children, is that of a tender shepherd of whom he, the Lord Jesus, said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep, listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So we worship. We worship because he's great. We worship because he's good. Look up and look back, my friends, regularly. Look up to God. Take into account in all of your circumstances. Take into account, first and foremost, God, look up. Look back at what God has done. And take heart for what God is doing in the present and for what he is guaranteed to do in the future. Look back, especially to the cross. It shows his greatness in bringing it about at just the right time. Have you ever considered that? At just the right time, God who controls the levers of world affairs, 
set all things in motion for what Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says was just the right time. God sent his son. He brought it about at just the right time and his goodness is shown as well on the cross in that it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. And so the great apostle said toward the end of that great chapter in Romans chapter 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So we worship God in our private lives when we come together. We do so because of who he is, and he is great, and he is good. Look up and look back. God tells us why we worship. That's why, because of who he is. And God tells us how we worship. Believe it or not, the elements that comprise our worship service every week are those that God tells us in Scripture He wants. So we really didn't just completely make it up. Now, the Bible doesn't give you an exact order, but it tells you the elements that God wants when His people come together. So in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says that when we come together, we are to offer public prayer. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, God says we are to engage in public reading of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we're instructed to receive offerings on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, on Sunday. And that's why we pass the plate. That's why Pastor Larry says before we do that, this is an act of worship. We're continuing our worship. It's worship through giving. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we are told that we're to preach. And in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19 and Colossians chapter 3, we are, when we come together, to sing. Now, doing what Scripture tells us to do is in keeping with a, a principle that came out of the Protestant Reformation of the... 16th century. Many of you are familiar with that. And that principle is called the regulative principle. And it's the principle that God's word regulates what it is that we do when we worship him. And it's based upon the then recovered doctrine of, in Latin, sola scriptura. The scriptures are alone, alone are the authority for truth and dogma, including how it is that we're to worship God. And so we go to God's word, we go to scripture to see what God tells us we're supposed to do. And in our psalm, there's an emphasis on one uh, and a couple, actually, of those aspects. The first is that we are, I say in the outline, to sing. Verse 1 says, come, let us sing for joy. You know, I chose Psalm 95 for today, not knowing that when I came into the auditorium that there would be a little bit of panic going on because we didn't have any internet. And if we don't have any internet, well, then that means we're not going to be able to show the stuff on the, on the screen, which means we can't put the lyrics up on the screen, and it's just going to cause all kinds of mayhem for us. So that's the reason that we started the service today four or five minutes 
late because we finally were able to get it back. Um, about 10 minutes before service was supposed to start, I just stopped by the sound booth to say hello to the guys. I saw a little bit of panic. And uh, they said, yeah, we don't have any. We don't know. Pastor Larry's trying to figure it out. And I, my contribution was, I'll pray. <laughs> so I'm taking credit for the fact that it came back. <laughs> but I also told them, you know, it happens that I'm going to be talking about worship, including music today. So it's God's design if we don't have any, but it was God's design that we did. And we thank him for that. And it's God who tells us when we come together, we sing. Verse 1, come, let us sing for joy. In the New Testament, we are told to sing with gratitude in our hearts. And so, friends, you will sing to God if two things happen. The first is if you have something to be joyful because grateful for. That's the first. If you have something to be joyful about because you're grateful for it, then you're someone who is primed to sing. And so I ask you, because this passage says, let us sing for joy, the New Testament, let us sing with gratitude. I ask you, do you have anything like that? And if not, then I would say to you, you don't think about the gospel, the good news, very much. If you think about that, you have something to be joyful because grateful for. And therefore, to sing. And the second thing is if you have, when we come together, facilitation of that singing by our music leaders. They are in front, and their job is to make it possible for us to, to sing. And I want to publicly thank our music leadership for doing just that. They know that their job is to make it possible for us together to sing together. And they work at it. And I have said in a few sermons going through the psalms, since it talks a lot about singing to the Lord, I've said, men, brothers, you need to sing. And some of you don't. And that concerns me. It concerns me because of what I said about joy and gratitude emanating from our hearts to God. And it concerns me because we men are supposed to lead our families in worship. So our families do not hear us singing out of joy and gratitude to the Lord. We are teaching them, but we're teaching them the wrong thing. I think we may need to make singing, and I'm not being uh, humorous about this, we may need to make singing part of men's ministry. Together as men, to learn to sing. So that when we come together, we can do that very thing. Make it part of our men's ministry because, in fact, it is that important. God tells us to sing, and he says to sing, I say in your outline, loud. Come, verse 1, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Now just think about the things about which you're willing to cheer and stand up and shout. And then ask yourself what, whether what Christ has done for you is in fact better. All of us, but brothers in particular, but think about the things you're willing to stand up and cheer and shout about. 
And I ask you, is what Jesus has done for you better than that? It's rhetorical, of course, I know it is. This past Thursday, I had the privilege of being at a periodic pastor's prayer meeting for the entire morning. Part of that morning was men singing together. And there were about, only about 15 of us. It sounded like there were 100 of us. There is really nothing like men who love the Lord singing their love for the Lord. There is worship in the broad sense in Scripture and worship in the narrow sense. The broad sense is worship is all of life, that everything that you and I do Every moment of every day is to be done in worship to the Lord, to bring glory to the Lord. When you go to work, when you prepare your meal, everything you do is to be done in worship to God. But there is worship in the narrow sense. The narrow sense is when God's people are gathered together as we are today. It's a special time when God meets with his people. And he expected in Scripture and he expects us today for us to take that seriously and participate accordingly. John MacArthur wrote a book years ago called Worship, the Ultimate Priority, the title of which I stole for the title of this sermon. He has a number of very helpful quotations in that book. I'm going to share some of those with you. He said, real meaningful worship with God's people is not optional. It's not a suggestion. It's not a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. Worship on the Lord's Day should be the crowning joy of our week. It's our opportunity to engage our minds toward God, to enjoy His people, to bask in His presence, to corporately drink from His Word, to give our talents, to give of our talents and resources, to encourage and to be encouraged, to offer praise. He says the source of most of the problems people have in their Christian lives relates to two things. Either they are not worshiping six days a week with their life, or they are not worshiping one day a week with the assembly of the saints. We need both. So what's supposed to happen when we come together on the Lord's Day, like today, is that it's a gathering of worshipers who also come to church. In other words, you've been worshiping all week, and now a bunch of worshipers come together, and they combine their worship together, and the leadership doesn't have to draw it out of you. They don't have to make it hip. They don't have to beg you to do it. You're here ready to do it because you've been worshiping all week. MacArthur says the crucial factor in worship in the church is not the form of worship, but the state of the hearts of the saints. If our corporate worship isn't the expression of our individual worshiping lives, it's unacceptable. If you think you can live any way you want and then go to church on Sunday morning and turn on worship with the saints, You're wrong, he says. So we sing, and we sing loud. That loud comes out of the overflow of hearts that have been cultivating worship for the entire week. And we sing, I say in the outline, we sing together. Verse 1 again, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him, notice, with music and song. So that's song, that's voices, but that's also music, instrumentation. 
And let us come with both. And the instruments are designed to help us keep time as we sing. And that's why I said earlier, the leaders for our music, their number one job is to facilitate the singing of God's people. And so contrary then to the concert approach that many churches are taking and have taken for many decades now, the time of congregational singing is not really for the performance of the musicians. We don't need any riffs on guitar. We don't need any riffs on keyboards. And we understand that. We understand that what's most important when we gather together is for us to hear each other singing praise to God, be encouraged by that, because it's our corporate confession to God. And that's why we often have the instruments drop out altogether. Just about every week, sometimes more than once on each week, the instruments are gone and you just hear the voices. So I ask you, do we hear your voice? Does God hear your voice? We sing together. God tells us why we worship. God tells us how we worship. And he tells us who we worship. The last part of verse 7, today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa, in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. And so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. It's a warning about, friends, going through the motions as if God himself is not the object of our worship. Just coming together and mindlessly doing the thing until it's over. And here now in the midst of two summons to worship, in verse 1, come, in verse 6, come, we're given reasons for both of those summons to come. But here now, in the midst of that, is a warning that when you come, you don't simply go through the motions. You remember me. You remember who it is that you are worshiping. God does not want simply our actions. God wants our hearts that motivate those actions. One preacher has helpfully explained this passage, that after the people had come out of Egypt and had passed through the desert, they came to a place called Rephidim, where there was no water. This was a serious matter for so large a company of people in so inhospitable an environment. The people had just seen the miracles God did in Egypt to free them from the Egyptian yoke. They should have trusted God to provide for them implicitly. But instead, they quarreled with Moses and were almost ready to stone him. God told Moses to take the staff that he had used to turn the Nile to blood and use it now to strike a great rock called the rock at Horeb. When he did this, a stream of water came forth from the rock, and the people's thirst was quenched. However, a double name was given to that place. It was called, on the one hand, Amasa, which means testing, because the people tested God by their sinful unbelief, and Meribah, 
which means quarreling because they quarreled with Moses about the lack of water. Years later, a similar incident occurred at Kadesh. God provided water there too, but it was said these were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he showed himself holy among them. And those two place names are brought together in a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 33. And this is what God brings forward now in this Psalm number 95 as an illustration of the disobedience of the people, as a result of which not one of them was allowed to enter the promised land. In the unfolding of the story in Exodus and the book of Numbers, it was the refusal of the people to believe the report of Joshua and Caleb about entering and possessing the land that led to the actual judgment of God, according to which every one of that generation, except Joshua and Caleb, were to die in the wilderness. But the spirit that led to the later unbelief was already present at the place called Massa and Meribah. Testing and unbelief were typical of the people, and they were present during the entire desert journey. And so the warning is this. If you want to worship God, make sure that you do not harden your heart against God's word or quarrel with him or test him as the ancients did. On the contrary, true worship is, on the one hand, hearing the word of God, and secondly, obeying the word of God. And then thirdly, praising God for it. Now see, friends, this is why then we make it a point to make the word of God central to what we do when we come together. Because we are to anticipate hearing from this God. Come with hearts that want to readily obey what our God says to bring glory to him and then to engage in praising him for that. But people who simply come together, because we've always done it, because I grew up with it, because I know it's the right thing to do, these are people about whom the prophet Isaiah spoke and that Jesus quoted Isaiah when he walked the earth. These people follow me with their sacrifices but their, and with their lips, but their hearts are far, remember, Far from me. And so God desires worshipers who worship him, Jesus said in John chapter 4, that the Father has come to seek those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what he's called you to do. That's what he's called me to do, to be his worshipers Monday through Saturday, and then we come together bringing it all together, worshiping him through the various means that God has described in his word, giving back to him, praying to him, proclaiming his truth, fellowshipping and encouraging one another, but also singing praise to him, doing it loudly and doing it together. Here's your take-home truth. Our worship must be from God, that is, our worship must be understood in terms of why we do it. He is God and he is great and good. Our worship must be from God, by God. He's the one who tells us how to do it. And our worship must be for God. We remember who it is we're worshiping. We're not just mouthing it and going through the, going through the motions. Now, you'll only do that 
if you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and God has made that possible, this great and good God has made that possible by the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Coming to earth, dying on the cross, but living a life of perfection, of righteousness before that, both of which you and I need in order to have a relationship with God. We need his righteous life applied to us because we have no righteousness of our own. And we need our sin, past, present, and future, to be paid for. He paid the penalty on the cross. And when you come to God through Jesus Christ, both of those are applied to you in that sacred moment. And so you must realize that you are a sinner. Recognize that Christ died for your sin. You repent. I'm no longer going to go my way. I'm no longer going to go my selfish way. I'm no longer going to worship myself and whatever it is that interests me throughout the week. It's all going to be centered and given to you, God, during the week and then on the first day of the week when we come together as God's people. Repent. Receive Jesus Christ into your life. He gives you a new heart, new motivations, new values, new priorities, new allegiances that then come out in the way, the manner that we worship together. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for gathering us as your people in your presence. Thank you, Lord, for the grand privilege of being able to worship you because you desire and you deserve the fullness of our lives and of our worship. So, Lord, I pray that you will mold our congregation into being a worshiping, joyful, grateful body of believers that pleases you when we come together because we give our all to you in our worship. Help us this afternoon to meditate on these things, to think about where we are in our worship. Do we just go through the motions? And Lord, if that's the case, thank you that you invite us to come, confess, you forgive us, we repent, we're going to move in a new direction. May this week, this coming week, be filled with your people thinking about you, placing you first in our minds and in our hearts, and then when we come together next Lord's Day, out of the overflow of those hearts, together we praise you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now just before we are dismissed with our closing song, we have someone who's going to be joining our church. So Loretta, if you'll come on up. Did somebody yell, hey, Loretta? Okay, wow. Well, here's, what, here's why, here's why, okay? Because Loretta acquired a kind of support group <laughs> at, the, at, the, at the newcomer's brunch that she attended at our house yesterday. And she had several ladies who said, hey, it's going to be fine tomorrow. And we're going to be sitting toward the front. There's Gina. There's Cassie over there. And they all said, we're going to be smiling. We're going to be supporting you. Kim said she would be as well. But she's way in the back. I don't know. Kim. She's got the sniffles. She didn't want to be up front here, so she's, she's back there. But they're all cheering you, and we are delighted that you're here. Uh, Loretta's been at our church for about a year now. She has come just about every Sunday. She has attended just about, if not all, of the midweek classes that we have for master plan. She has been asking questions about theology and growing in the Lord and desiring to grow in the Lord more, and I have told her that she's been... a personal encouragement to me. 
so we're thrilled that you're here. She came because she and Sandra Gorham are neighbors. And they were talking some time ago, and Sandra said, you ought to come to our church, and the rest is history. We've heard uh, her testimony of salvation and of baptism. She signed our church covenant, so we're recommending her for membership. All in favor of receiving Loretta Moore into the membership of our church, signify by saying amen. 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 Any opposed? Thanks, Loretta, and welcome. All right, let's stand for our closing song. Let's sing together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Let's sing it again. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above He heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Wonderful singing. I could hear you loud and clear, so I know that you listened to Pastor Ken this morning. Just outside of these doors until 11.15, we have our time of cafe community. Make sure you grab some coffee, some bagels, some other stuff, and talk about the beautiful Lord and Savior that we have during that time. At 11.15, we'll start with our second hour in this room. We'll see you then.
right, everybody, come on in, find a spot.